Well, hello, everybody. Tom Burgoyne here, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. I'm sitting here uh, with my partner in crime, John Brazier. How are you, John? Tom, I'm doing great. Uh, always good to hear Skip Denenberg, <laughs> and uh, he is one local entertainment legend, and we are going to be soon to be joined by another local entertainment legend, Mike Tolan, and I'm very, very excited. How long did you come up with that segue? That's a beautiful segue from Skip, De- Skip Denenberg, just, local just hero. Keep, well, you know my preparation is right, <laughs> yeah. right before. That just came right off the <laughs> top of your seconds, head. Two seconds, yes. All right, well, let's not waste any time here. We have our guest. Uh, he's coming off, John, you know, the wildly successful last dance documentary on Netflix about Michael Jordan and the Bulls. We're going to talk to him I about wa- that. I watched that real time. It was riveting. Uh, yeah. You forget. It just brought you back to that era, Michael Jordan. Yeah, it was awesome. So let's bring him in. Film, television, producer, director. He does it all from Philadelphia. Mike Tolan. How you doing, Mike? Hi, guys. Uh, describing me as a legend makes me sound a little old, but uh, I guess I've been called worse by better. How about that? <laughs> well, it's great because we saw you in town last week, Mike, and uh, please yeah. tell us uh, you know, uh, how it came to be that you were part of the Dick Allen retirement, uh, you know, number retirement ceremony, and uh, how special was that for you? Kind of surreal, guys. I mean, you know how big a Philly fan I am. I've been a Philly fan since Dick Allen came into the league. As I think I started my speech saying uh, Richie Allen's rookie year with the Phillies was my rookie year as a fan. He was 22. I was eight. He had a much better year than I did. Um, so, you know, I had this incredible life journey of having my boyhood hero become my friend. We've been friends. We turned from Richie to Dick, obviously. So I met him in Oakland in 77. His last year in the majors, he was Dick Allen. So we've been friends for 43 years. I've had him in two of my movies, Dreamer, which was a horse movie with Kurt Russell, Elizabeth Shue, and Dakota Fanning, and Summer Cats, of course, where he played the man, the man in the black house, Pat. He was a scout. He came down and he just wowed all these, you know, young single A, double A baseball players that were in this Cape Cod baseball movie with Freddie Prinze and Jessica Biel and Brian Dennehy. Um, so, um, you know, I i would say Dave Montgomery was one of my dearest friends, one of the people who most influenced me. Um, just really, I i felt like i he's a guy you kind of want to be like. He, he, he treats people the way you'd want to be treated. Um, he just was a role model. I mean, the testament is that, like, you know, we've all been in the Phillies family for decades. You know, for like, you know, Kelly, who answered the phone in 1980, world champion Phillies is still answering the phone. Well, now she's not in the office, but no, she is. Um, she's she's here today. <laughs> is she there? I saw her when I her drove back, in. Guys. Yep. Give her a big hug for me. So, um, you know, I we would talk about everything and we would go back to those early days. And, you know, I got to know the other ownership when 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 we lost Dave last year, it was, it was tough. Um, but I'm always around the team, and I've gotten to know John Middleton some uh, through the years. And I realized um, through seeing different stories and different conversations that he's only a few months older than me, basically grew up around the corner from me. He was in Haverford. I was in Havertown. We were, like, on opposite sides of the tracks, basically. Um, and we both worshipped Richie Allen. And um, he had the same fond feelings, and I, you know, started talking to him about the Hall of Fame and what what the Phillies could do as an organization. And there was this long-standing policy that they never retire a number unless that player has been inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I think he just started thinking about that and whether he was willing to challenge it. Um, anyway, we had a lot of dialogue. Um, when he finally decided he wanted to do it, he asked me to speak. Um, because he knew I would be speaking from the heart, from from personal experience, and more as a as a friend. Um, he was speaking as a Phillies fan who's who's grown up to, to be the owner of the team and in position to honor his his idol. Mike Smith um, was talking from the position of a Hall of Famer, you know, greatest Philly ever, greatest third baseman in baseball history. Maybe most importantly a teammate of, of Dick Allen for two years and talked about what a, what a great presence he was in the clubhouse. And I was talking to uh, to the audience about what a great guy Dick was, how many misconceptions have 
have been perpetrated through the years, you know, angry, sullen, militant, not, none of the above, just a peaceful, loving, sweet man, grateful, gracious, generous. Um, so it was, it was kind of surreal. I mean, I said to John, are you sure you want me to speak? I'm just a fan. No, no, Mike, you'll fit in really nicely, you know, batting second between Middleton and Schmidt. Um, <laughs> I was overwhelmed, honored, flattered, and, um, I think it's you know it's going to take a while for it to sink in. It was a really really special day. Mike, tell talk the audience about uh, which I think is really cool. The first time you met Dick Allen, you were a, I believe a young reporter, and you were in the clubhouse, right? Yeah. And, you, and here you, Dick Allen's uh, one of your favorite players. Tell us what happened. <laughs> well, so I get this press pass. I'm a cub reporter for the Stanford campus radio station KZSU FM. 90.1 in your dial. You guys probably haven't been there. But, um, man, it's as good as it gets, right? It's been all downhill from there. Um, anyway, I get a press pass. So I get to go into the locker room. I wait for the game to be over. And, like, my knees are knocking, man. I'm nervous. This is my guy. And I'm going to, like, what if he's not nice to me? What if, you know, what if he's a jerk? What if, you know, what if he treats me like the press? Well, of course, I made the mistake of acting like the press and walked up to him in the middle of him having a conversation uh, with a young player you know, he's sitting there, half undressed, drinking a beer. And, and you know, what people don't know, he was, he was a mentor. He was such a student of the game. He would take the young players under his wing, and they'd all gravitate. So they'd all sit around in his locker afterwards. So he's talking to a guy, and he's got that 40-ounce bat, and he's, you know, telling a story or giving him some tips. And I just stick my microphone right in front of his face and ask him some dopey question about a game. And his mind is a million miles away, and this is kind of – where you know where the bad stuff started because the press in philly just buried him you know he he, he was independent uh and he was private um and they just like interpreted his way as being all those all those adjectives i just used angry sullen militant um but he's like developed this kind of uh shield so he kind of stops what he's saying to the young player and he starts reciting statistics from a recent horse race you know he's a fanatic horse guy and he's just you know going on and on about secretariat you know it's like the year secretariat is going to win the, the triple crown or something or maybe a seattle flu i forget so he's just not even looking at me it's completely dissing me treating me just like those media guys and i'm i'm out of there this sucks this <laughs> and do, like, do you feel like you, you blew know, your I'm, opportunity I'm, right there <laughs> yeah it's like what have i done man this is your this you've been waiting your whole life for this you're, you're, you're 21 years old and like, oh man, you've alienated him and like, I'll never get another shot and that's just so not the way I wanted this to go. So I go out of the locker room. I'm, I'm trying to like figure it out. I go, all right, we got We got to take another shot at this. So I got to, I got to come up with like basically, um, a disguise or just in like a new approach. I'm going to wait a few minutes. Hopefully he forgets that because he didn't really look at me. I hide the tape recorder. I take off my jacket. I untuck my shirt. I mess up my hair. There's like another door so I can come around through the other way. And I'm just kind of ambling in, you know, like a guy, no tape recorder, no, no pad and paper or something. I walk up to him and I go, oh, hi, Dick. My name's Mike Tolan and I'm from Philadelphia. And uh, I just wanted to say hello. <laughs> and now he turns and looks at me. Oh, you're from Philly, huh? Hmm. Well, sit down. Have a beer. We need to talk. Nice. And so now my knees are really knocking. Maybe he knows and maybe he's going to get me back for all that. But he just starts asking me questions. Where are you from? What school did you go to? Why are you out here in the Bay Area? And, you know, as I, as I said the other day, once you get him going and it's a personal conversation and not, not some interrogation, man, he'll talk your ear off. So we're going everywhere. And, I, you know, I know enough about his personal history. We're going back through the years and talking about his family and his brothers that were in the game and horse racing and why you know at Stanford you know he wore a little bit of trivia it's so funny we retired number 15 um, but in 77 that year he was wearing number 60 and instead of Allen on his jersey he wore it said wampum so hmm. his whole thing was this will be my last year and I'm just going to honor where I came from so he was wampum high from wampum Pennsylvania class of 1960 so if you ever find a photo, I don't know if it even exists online, you'll see him in this green and green and gold Oakland A's uniform with Wampum 60. You know, and it, anyway, 
So it's getting pretty personal, and um, it's really, uh, now it is exactly how I might have dreamed it. And he says to me, are you, are you Jewish? I'm like, why is he asking me that? You know, I kind of go, yeah, you know, sort of skeptically. And he looks at me with a big smile and says, well, all right then, God's chosen people. You know what it's like to be oppressed. And I, you know, sort of shrug my shoulders and go, okay, <laughs> that, that works. And um, I just think he, he, he really opened up to me a little more than about what he went through in Philadelphia and how hard it was. I mean, the stories are legendary. I mean, remember, you guys know this, but before he came up in his rookie year in 64, the Phillies had the great idea to send him to Little Rock, Arkansas. Right, yeah. 1963. Orville Favis, the governor of Arkansas, is out there leading the protesters on the tarmac when he gets off the plane. This is the guy who, like, stood in front of the National Guard trying to keep Central High from being integrated in the, in the late 50s. Um, man, what he went through, the names, things thrown at him, the abuse. And, you know, we heard it. And I would go to Connie Mack Stadium with my dad, and it was just it was shocking. And I didn't understand. And then, of course, the Frank Thomas fight happened in 1965, where the team then, um, you know, kicked Thomas off the team and told Richie Allen, their young superstar, he couldn't tell his side of the story. And so he was vilified by the press, and it just got worse and worse and worse. So um, we shared a lot of that. Um, we, I would go see him in spring training. Um, <clears throat> I'd see him when he was with the, the White Sox. You know, year after year after year, you know, he, he, he traveled, I traveled, we all moved through the world. To have it all culminate in that event Thursday night and um, – you know, I think I think John and some of the Phillies people were were wondering how would he take it. Um, you know, would he be beyond um, being appreciative? You know, you know, has it has it been too long? Um, and the answer, you know, I don't know if you guys, I know you were there, but I don't know if you really got a sense. He was so blown away. I mean, I sat with him afterwards, and he looked me in the eye and he said, "I, I just, I can't believe it." He called me Stafford. I call him Wampum can't believe it, Stafford. I mean, after all these years, to think the way the way I was treated and the way you know I kind of got run out of town to be to be given this much love, to be treated this way, to have this honor up there forever, and shaking his head, speechless, near you know near tears. And um, I know how John feels. I mean, uh, John feels really, really good about it. Um, you know, like. I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for him. Maybe you guys will have him on and hear his version of it. Um, but um, I think it's about as proud as he's ever been of anything professionally. And uh, I think it's just a great day for the Phillies, a great day for baseball. Awesome. Well, I know uh, you've been working on uh, the Gallon Project, the documentary, and I got I got to think that the retirement uh, is going to be a, a nice, hopefully not an ending. I've heard you talk that you no, know, hopefully the ending is the you know the ultimate um, prize, and that's Cooperstown. Yeah. But um, uh, tell us a little well, bit about the project uh, and um, yeah, how, how that got started and uh, when when we can expect to see that. I guess we got to wait till hopefully the Cooperstown. Well, I'd love to have that happy ending you're talking about. Um, uh, you know, I think um, I think I think Dick's been expecting it to come out because we've been shooting uh, <laughs> literally for two decades. Um, wow. We shot Summer Cat in the summer of 2000, and I have this footage of him with those guys and you know being a mentor to them. Um, I went to Wampum in about 2010 and spent a few days with them. Um, I mean, I've been all over, um, just bits and pieces here and there, down in Clearwater a number of times. Um, I threw a 50th birthday party for him that he didn't show up for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, you're going to be a friend with, with Dick Allen. You're going to learn, you know, to <laughs> set the bar kind of low in terms of, you know, showing up. And, you know, as I said, he's fiercely independent. You learn to love him for it. Um, he doesn't mean, doesn't mean to disappoint you. He's just, you know, following, following the, you know, the, the, the beat of his, his own drummer. Um, and I do love him for it. And I've seen the way... I've seen the way he is with his kids. I've seen the way he is with my kids. He was so sweet with them. Um, both my son Lucas and my daughter Georgia were there. Um, so it's a it's it's really a story of an unlikely friendship. Um, we'll go back to the '60s. We'll shoot some, you know, recreations. We're gonna we're gonna get a lot of old footage. And I've already done 
50 or 60 interviews. I'll probably do another 30 or 40. Um, got a lot of people talking about his Hall of Fame, but also telling great anecdotes. And, you know, the Chicago days were amazing. I mean, as you guys know, when he, when he came, he went to St. Louis and then Los Angeles. And then in 1972, he went to Chicago to play for Chuck Tanner, who, as he always said, he's from home. He's from Western Pennsylvania. You know, he called my mama. He said, I'll take care of him. He came and won the MVP in his first year with the White Sox, won another home run title. People in Chicago say that Dick Allen saved baseball on the south side of Chicago because the White Sox were were dead. Nobody came. Nobody wanted to go. And he just lit it up for three years. And then, of course, came back to Philly. So, um, so this will be a film that will be very cathartic for me, very, very personal. Um, it's gonna, it's gonna have a lot of mixed media. There'll be some home movies and there'll be some faux home movies. Um, yeah, you know, I've been asking people, I've, you know, uh, great to ask your listeners if you have anything at all. Um, you can just send it to our website, which is mandalaysportsmedia.com. Um, we'll make sure that everybody's, um, appropriately compensated if anybody has something that they can contribute to the film. But, um, as you said, um, it looks like they have postponed the vote. Um, yeah. It, it, uh, when we made plans for this retirement, um, we thought this would be setting it up for a vote that was scheduled to happen in December. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Golden Era um, Committee, um, you know, from post-war to 1970. Dick fits into that. Even though his career was only half done, you know, they put him in this era because um, that's where he you know, made his name with the Phillies. Um, and they postponed the vote. They didn't want to meet, uh, meet virtually. They didn't want to do it by Zoom. Um, and they said, no, we're not going to do it till next December. So a full year. And he's been waiting for six years. In 2014, the last time this committee met, um, there's 16 guys that vote. You need 75% to get in. So you need 12 out of 16. You got 11. You missed it by a vote. Yeah. And we thought, oh, next year, next year. Six years later, and now it's being postponed. One more year, year, yeah. That's yeah. So that's kind of crushing, and I think there's going to be a little bit of petitioning to see if they might do a vote in the spring, um, and still, you know, have them be eligible to be inducted. Um, it would be amazing if he was in the class of well, 2021, because as you guys know, Dave Montgomery is going to be inducted hmm. next year. Is going to was going to receive the Buck O'Neill honor. So. Um, I'm guessing you guys will be there as part of the Philly. No doubt about it. I hope to be there. Yep. Yeah. So wouldn't that be something if Dick was there with Dave? Well, one way or another, we'll be there to honor Dave. For sure. Definitely. Um, Hey, Mike, you've done a lot of great, you know, going back into your, um, you know, everything you've done in your uh, career, you've done a lot of documentaries on and movies on different uh, people. So how did you, how do you select people like Chuck Wepner? How do you, AI, you did a you know great documentary on AI, Kareem yeah. Abdul Jabbar. Like, how do you how do you find what? Are you looking for a common theme? Are you does it do the projects come to you? How how does it all work? Man, John, it's like you know they say it's you know it's it's art, not science. Um, everyone is a very specific journey that um, are, it's hard to really follow the breadcrumbs because they take so damn long. I mean, the breadcrumbs get stale. I mean, some of the projects you just mentioned, Chuck Webner, if your listeners don't know, is the real Rocky. He was a, he was a fighter who was kind of a stepping stone for guys on their way to a championship shot. Or in 1975, he actually got a shot to fight for the championship against Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali had just won back the title using the rope-a-dope to beat George Foreman. And he wanted an easy fight. So they, they needed to take somebody from the top ten, so they picked number ten. It was Chuck Webner. Um, and uh, they fought. And Ali didn't even really train for it. And it was like a 40-to-1 shot. Back then, as you guys may remember, um, it wasn't pay-per-view. If you wanted to watch a heavyweight championship fight, you had to go to movie theater and pay like 25 bucks um, in what we called closed circuit. So here's this fight and this young aspiring wannabe filmmaker actor named Sylvester Stallone, the name might ring a bell, 
pays his 25 bucks and watches this fight and sees this, this, this guy out of nowhere go the distance against Ali. And he goes, that's my story. I'm that guy. Um, and he writes Rocky. So the movie comes out, wins an Academy Award, and Sylvester Stallone tells the world that Chuck Webner is the real Rocky. And so, you know, Chuck Webner became, you know, the king of the Jersey Shore um, back in the back in the 70s. Um, I I heard a story about Chuck Webner suing Sylvester Stallone because after all, the millions and millions of dollars, this is, you know, 35, almost 40 years later, um, Chuck didn't get his fair share and he decided, all right, enough is enough. And there was a lawsuit and I thought, what a fascinating journey, what an interesting life. And so we optioned the rights. That one took 13 years. Wow. And we... Yeah, we put down the option money till the till the time when Liev Schreiber could be seen on the big screen. Yeah, Liev Schreiber, you gotta love that, and Naomi Watts too, right? I mean, I, I love that yeah. movie, Mike. M- Mike, and um, oh, like, do you uh, do you prefer working on a documentary or um, or a, a regular story? You know, f- I, love, I, I love I love going back and forth. If, okay, if, if I'm knee deep in like you know four years of the Last Dance, I'll tell you, oh man, I can't wait for my next movie. Yeah. Right, if I'm you know, spending, you know, the next two years on, well, I won't be doing it solidly, but I'll be working on um, the Dick Allen story over the course of the next few, two years. But, we, you know, we have a couple movies in the hopper. Um, you know, you know, to go back to your question, John, though, I love underdogs. I love heartwarming, unlikely stories with happy endings. Um, you know, Chuck Webner, you, you know, the, 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 the real Rocky movie, which was ultimately just called Chuck, was about as dark as I go. I mean, ultimately, it was kind of bittersweet. But, um, you know, I love, I love, I mean, the, the Richie Allen story is going to have a happy ending. Um, there's this great hockey movie that we have set up at Disney now. It's called Great Scott. Um, it's about the enforcer who was, you know, arguably the worst player in the NHL. And four, four years ago, when the NHL decided to give their all star voting to the fans, a couple of knucklehead podcasters said, okay, let's disrupt this. Let's think of the worst player in the league and start a writing campaign. And they picked this guy, John Scott, who was playing for the, for the Coyotes, and it, and it went viral, and it worked. And all of a sudden, he's like 50th, 30th in the top 10. Oh, my God, he's going to make the team. The NHL interceded and prevailed upon the team to trade him to the Canadiens, whereupon they optioned him to like this godforsaken minor league uh, team in far eastern Canada, and it looked like okay, we've taken care of the problem. Then his wife and his agent read the bylaws and and discovered that there was nothing in the bylaws for All Star Game participation that prohibited somebody who wasn't on an NHL roster. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden they couldn't deny him to play. John Scott gets invited to the game. He's the captain because he's now the leading vote-getter, because people were so pissed off after the NHL banished him. He goes into the game, scores two goals, wins the MVP award, (laughs) wins a car, his wife is pregnant, has a baby three days later. I mean, this is this crazy fairy tale Disney story that's all completely true. So um, we've set that up. Mitch Album is the writer, and um, we have a great director attached, and hopefully we'll be making that right after the pandemic and all. So... um, you know, in a way, they do kind of find you, but there there are certain things. I'm just, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of crime documentaries now. I'm not interested, um, not really interested in horror films. And like I said, um, you go to the movies for an escape. You go to the movies. You want to feel good when you when you come out of it. So, um, you know, I'm not I'm not embarrassed to admit those are the things I gravitate to. Well, the AI documentary you did uh, led you, or was a big help in getting you to secure Last Dance, correct? Like when you, there was a lot of people, if I understand, there was a lot of different groups that were pitching Michael Jordan on doing the story, uh, knowing that the NBA had all this archival footage, but um, but your work on, didn't your work on AI help? Well, Because he was a huge fan of that. Well, since I'm speaking to a largely Philly audience, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind telling the story. Um, the truth is, you know, you never know. You never know what works when you're in a pitch meeting, right? It could be something you don't even remember saying. It could be an inflection. It could be a, you know, it could be just a, a connection on a personal level. Um, I was I was finally invited by uh, Curtis Polk and Esty Portnoy, who are they're kind of Michael's partners in all of his business ventures. They manage him. You know, Curtis is a lawyer. 
uh, Estee's a really um, sharp woman who you know works on the Nike stuff and all the endorsements and the, and you know all of the non basketball stuff. Um, they've been together for a couple of decades, and they're the gatekeepers. And um, they liked the idea. They um, worked with me on creating materials that we could present to Michael. I had a lookbook. They finally called me and said, "Okay, fly to Charlotte. Um, he's here. We know he's going to be here." Because it's draft day. This is going back to 2016. Um, he's kind of captive because he's got to be here for the draft. I took a red eye from um, from Los Angeles. I remember my wife saying, um, what time's the meeting? I said, well, actually, you don't really have a meeting. She's like, wait, you're taking a red eye across the country and you don't even have a meeting? I said, it's Michael Jordan. Yeah, exactly. See ya. So I flew all night. I get to the hotel. I get a few hours of sleep. I put on TV. And it's the day, just weirdly coincidentally, that LeBron James is parading through the streets of Cleveland with the championship trophy, having just come back from that three-to-one deficit to beat the Warriors and win the title. Mm. How weird is that? I'm mm. going to go see Michael Jordan on the day. Okay, anyway, not going to get into GOAT conversations because as far as I'm concerned, Michael's the GOAT. Um, LeBron says he's the GOAT. Anybody who says he's the GOAT isn't the GOAT. There you right, go. Right? I agree. Michael's Good point. Said. I agree. So... So I finally go in, and we're sitting there, and like, uh, Esty says, I don't know, Michael's not in a good mood. I don't really know if it's going to work. Just hang on. I'm like, hey, I'm here. So finally, okay, he's going to see you. So we walk in, the three of us, Curtis, Esty, and I, um, shake his hand. He's got, talk about a million-dollar smile, man. I mean, no wonder people wanted to be like Mike, right? And this isn't just the greatest player of all time. This is a magnetic, charismatic personality. I mean, you know, the most famous man in the world, not just because he was a great basketball player. Um, so charming, so personable, a little small talk about the series. Yeah, you know, I'm rooting for the Warriors. Steve Kerr's my boy. You know, we're teammates. So um, on and on about that. So I hand him I hand him what we call a lookbook. It's basically, you know, it's like a, you know, it's a, sa- it's a sales tool, really. It's a brochure. It's got lots of pictures and lots of words. And, and the first page is a letter from me to him, not knowing if I'd ever actually get to present it in person. So I wrote, Dear Michael, every day a bunch of young producers uh, or interns or assistants come into my office wearing your shoes who've never seen you play. New paragraph. It's time. And he kind of liked that. And, you know, I went on to talk about legacy and talk about 20 years later perspective and distance and nobody's really heard your version of the story about the dynasty. And there's these 500 hours of unseen footage that the NBA shot during that last championship in 97, 98. So he's leafing through it and it's going well. And I feel like, mm, yeah, you never really know. I've had a lot of great meetings that turned into nothing and a lot of terrible meetings that turned into something. So we get to the last page. We've been there half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, you know, talking about different stuff here and there. And the last page is generally you, you kind of put your credits there just to kind of, you know, hopefully credibility from having done this or that. And, and are you feeling pretty good at this there. point or are you, what's feeling your temperature pretty, right now? Pre- I'm feeling pretty good, John. But like I said, you know, the only thing you know is you know nothing from a meeting like that. Because Michael's so charming that he could just be being a good guy to make me feel good. I don't really know if he has any interest in doing this at all. But, you know, if I'm a betting man, I think I got a 60-40 shot, let's say. Who knows? So we come to the last page, and he's going around this page of Hank Aaron, Varsity Blues, Coach Carter, Kareem, and the last one, it's, it's you know, it's sort of in a, uh, on the border, and he's going around it clockwise, and he comes all the way down to the bottom right corner, and there's Allen Iverson, and he stops, and he takes off his reading glasses, and he looks at me and says, you did that? I'm like, oh, man. So... Philly guy, Sixer fan that I am, I'm just thinking of the crossover, right? Everybody remembers <laughs> the time. The time. Alan broke down Michael, and I'm thinking, oh, man. You know, we've, we've now seen the last dance. We know about the grudges Michael holds or manufactures to fuel his fire. I'm like, oh, is this the deal killer? <sighs> so I go, you know, kind of under my breath, yeah. I'm like, oh, it's so close. He comes from around the desk and looks me in the eye and says, Watched it three times, made me cry. Love that little guy. Oh Let man, that's it. awesome. Just that's like that. Great. Now, okay. So now, yeah, you know, like truly, 
that may have had nothing to do with it. It just happened to be the last thing in the in the journey. Um, whatever, whatever it was, it's a, it's a great end to the story, right? That you guys asked me to tell. So like. Let's give AI the credit. What yeah. the hell? Well, how many times, like, I think in your that documentary, Iverson, don't you show that crossover like 47 times? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's certainly prominent. I wasn't responsible for the editing. No, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, that, yeah. but no, we had a really nice talk about it. And Michael, I guess there was a Hall of Fame day and they were flying together and... Um, Michael has huge respect for Alan as a guy, as a player. We, you know, he went, into, he went, he, he expanded about why he loved his game, why he loved his ferocity. I mean, look, Michael's thing was, aside from being as gifted as he was, being as, as intense. I mean, that's probably the most, you know, just from anecdotal evidence and the kinds of things people tell you after 10 hours of the last dance, I'd say the most memorable three minutes were the end of episode seven where Michael nearly breaks down talking about his intensity and how hard he tried and how he never asked anything of his teammates that he didn't ask of himself. He got very emotional. And when you think about, you know, those players that get to that level of intensity, Alan's right there. And I got to tell you that it was perfect timing because that was right in the middle of the pandemic. No, every sport has been shut down. There'd been a lot of buildup for showing your show. showed it on, I believe it on Sunday night, and it was basically yeah. for someone that lived through it. All three of us did. Uh, it, it, and you knew the. I knew the endings, mm. but same time you get right. all wrapped up into the into the you know the drama of you know are they going to are they going to catch for that second championship? Are they going to mm. catch for that third championship? So it was great. What was Michael Jordan's rea- Have you do you know his reaction after the whole thing aired? Um, do you personally yeah. know what how he felt I, towards it? Yeah, I do. I'm I'm happy to say he was great about it. I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, for whatever reason, I, look, it was um, it was an incredible confluence of events. Jason Hare is an incredibly talented director. Um, it resonated with audiences, like you said. There were no other games on. It became a ritual. Um, I love the fact that we didn't put it out to where you could binge watch it and you could only watch two hours a week and everybody wanted to talk about it Monday morning. So it was kind of the return of the water cooler. So... Um, it, it, you know, um, for whatever reason, it got, you know, the highest numbers ever for a lot of reasons. And then I guess there just has to be a backlash because that's the world we live in, right? Social media and everybody, you know, wants to kind of put in their two cents. So now all of a sudden we start reading things about, oh, it's all just, you know, Michael Jordan's thing. And he, he had control creatively and he determined what was in and what was out. None of that was true. I mean, we interviewed Michael three times for about eight hours total. Um, there was never a question that he avoided or, you know, said next. I mean, you saw how honest he was, you know, opinions of other players, how frank he was about Isaiah Thomas, you know, how he talked about the, uh, as Jason Hare put it, the flying cocaine circus in his rookie year. <laughs> completely <laughs> open to everything. Yeah. And the only suggestions he ever made, um, he watched every cut. Um, mostly just, you know, said, great, keep going. Every now and then he'd say, you know, just, just so you know, if you want to look for it, like there was a game when he came back um, in uh, 96, um, or excuse me, in 95, you know, in between the two three-peats. Um, and his first game back, he, he was really rusty and had a bad game against Indiana. And then we cut to the double nickel, the 55-point game against the Knicks in the Garden. And he said, just so, by the way, there was a game against um, Atlanta in between where I hit a, a game winner at the buzzer um, really gave me the confidence. It really kind of put me back in, you know, the right headspace and gave me what I needed to propel me without which I'm not sure I would ever had that 55 point game. Mm. So we went and found it and Jason decided to put it in. And it was just like, you know, just a suggestion and it was great. So anything he said was additive. Um, there was no censoring. There was no ask, asking to be cut. You know, we talked about the gambling. We talked about, you know, the suspension, you know, the conspiracy theories, the events surrounding his father's death, you know, the the activism or, or lack of activism, the famous comment, Republicans buy shoes too. Nothing was off limits. Um, and he's very happy with it. Um, you know, Michael just, you know, uh, nods and moves on and, you know, heads back to the golf course. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's very pleased and um, 
it really is, uh, is I, I think for him, obviously, that was just the right time, the right place to, to be able to tell his story. And I think he's really grateful that people have responded the way they did. And it's kind of cool that, you know, there was the ESPN run and then like a whole new rebirth with the Netflix run. And right. now it's, yeah, no, Mike, I, I saw 15 million, uh, I think, viewers. Do you, do you keep track of yeah. that? Is it almost like box office, uh, you know, now that yeah. everybody's streaming? Do you look at, <laughs> were there bets to see how many people might tune into this? Because, like you said, it was such a, yeah, a, well, a, a great timing on this. Well, everybody's competitive and everybody's projecting and everybody's hoping. But it's not, um, it doesn't really, it's not the primary concern. Mm. I mean, you, you know, it's like, it's like an athlete. You put your head down, you do your you do your best, you know, you hit a line shot, you know, that goes into the glove of a diving shortstop and it's a double play instead of a two-run single. You know, you got to try to feel good about, you know, you prepared yourself, you had a great at-bat, you hit the ball hard. Look, I think, as I said already, um, Jason's an incredibly talented director. We had a spectacular team um, to be able to bring this together. Um, it was supposed to premiere on June 2nd to bring it out on April 19th, like six weeks ahead of time during a pandemic when guys are, are are taking the hard drive into their apartments and we're editing this material from six different remote stations and trying to cobble it all together and make it work. Um, you know, very, very, very grateful that, that we could pull it off. Awesome. Awesome. Well, before John asks you about Jessica Beale, because I know he's a big <laughs> fan, Summer, <laughs> Summer Catch and Jessica Beale, but I had one other project I wanted to ask you about because I saw it and I loved it. It was the Katy Perry at halftime. I had no idea you were wow. uh, attached to that. Uh, you did a, wow, um, so, yeah. So, Tom, you, so this, I, I get to use the famous line. So you were the one. Oh, you know what? <laughs> it, it's so good because, um, it's a John. It's a documentary on the making of the Super Bowl halftime show uh, when she did did the show, and I, it, it's mind blowing how um, much goes into that. I mean, you're in Hollywood, Mike. You, you know, to make a movie, to make a TV show, that's mind blowing to see just the level of detail and the production. You know, the numbers of people it takes. But man, the Super Bowl. I, I'm just curious on how that how how how, how you came up with that idea. Yeah, this is this is what's great about these conversations, and what makes me feel incredibly fortunate to get to do what I do. Forty, you know, um, maybe this is in the trivia quiz, John. But my first job was working for Greatest Sports Legends. You got that coming at me, John? No, but I did know that. <laughs> I did know that. Okay, so all right, so um, we our office was on City Line Avenue in the attic, so I had to walk up three flights of stairs through the San Marco restaurant, which no longer exists, across from a Roy Rogers, which no longer exists, right on City Avenue in Ballakinwood. Um, and that that was my first job. And um, you just never know. Like, every now and then, people will say, oh, man, I love the Ted Williams show from Greatest Sports Legends. Or, like, I mean, the Katy Perry show, Tom, like, you know, there's a hundred projects. That's maybe number one hundred one. Right, right. I know. I loved it, man. And I'm, you know, Katy Perry. I like Katy Perry, but I'm just, I was just amazed by the production of that, you know, and well, to, and well, the idea to have a documentary about it. Well, you know, there's a there's a great friend of mine at NFL Network named Ron Semio, who who was like one of the creators of the X Games. Um, we did the Bronx's Burning back together when he was still at ESPN, um, and. Uh, he thought it would be cool because it would be great programming for the NFL Network. We thought it would be cool because Katy Perry is pretty cool, and we knew what a stickler for detail she was. And as you saw, mm. I mean, the production was so elaborate, huh. flying and the costume changes and all. And, um, yeah, she gets most of the credit. I mean, we were backstage so you could see she wasn't just performing. She was producing. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks, man. I, I, I appreciate the nod. Nice. Well, Mike, you're probably going to have, I imagine after the last dance, you're probably going to have like Tiger Woods, <laughs> Brett Favre, Wayne Gretzky, all these legends uh, in their own respective sports saying, you know what? I want Mike Tolan to be the executive producer for my story. Well, that was the only problem I had with yeah. last dance. It wasn't about Julius Irving. It was about Michael Jordan. <laughs> if it was uh, about Dr. Yeah. J. Uh. Hey, you better yeah. not do one on the San Diego uh. chicken. You better do it on the <laughs> Philly, Philly fanatic. <laughs> That, that ain't happening, man. If there's a mascot story in my future, you know where it is. <laughs> big fan, Tom. Big fan. All right. Are we ready for your quiz, Mike? I mean, I, we, I don't know. I'm, I'm no. sitting down. Don't, don't sitting kill down. me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do my best. 
All right, uh, Tom. What does he win if he gets? We, we always we we do. Uh, we go about uh, six out of eight. If you get six out of eight, which again, these questions are skewed okay. towards you. Uh, Tom, what does he win? Well, I'd say that he'd win a uh, DVD of the Philly Fanatic Goes Hollywood because Mike and his family are in it. But uh, I think he's already he got it. Already so. has one. <laughs> you'll, you'll have a prize you know, to be named later. Video Dan doesn't always send them out, Tom. So um, I, I might just love watching that with my son. Oh, know, that would be tremendous. It's, it's coming your way, Mike. If you, but you got to get six uh, of eight. You know, you got to get six okay, of eight. All right, here we go. Eight questions. Mike Tolan, ready? First question is, we always start uh, our guests, so you would have uh, cheated, you could, or you could have had a little big hint uh, if you had listened to any of our podcasts, but number one is uh, you went to Hereford High School, uh, and I grew up uh, playing hockey at the stadium, and I played many uh, high school games at the stadium, so very familiar with Havertown, love that area, but uh, Hereford High School, um, which of these celebrities did not graduate from Hereford High? So I'm going to name four celebrities, three of them went to Hereford High, one did not. Okay, so uh, A yep. is four-time Super Bowl tight end with the Steelers, Randy Grossman. B is Buddy Marucci, who's a 2008 U.S. Senior Amateur Golf Champion, Walker Cup Captain, and uh, my old former neighbor growing up in my St. David's neighborhood. That's not much of a hint, but go ahead. Uh, number three, Match Game 76 contestant, Brett Summers. She was the one with the big glasses, always sat next to Charles Nelson Riley. Uh, and D, Olympic swimmer, Brendan Hansen. So you have, well, I know the first two did because Buddy was my neighbor and Randy Grossman was, yeah, Steelers, and the, it's a so it's a fifty percent chance. So yes, yeah, so you have um, Olympic swimmer Brendan Hansen, or you have Match Game seventy six contestant Brett Summers with the big glasses and uh, sat next to Charles Nelson Riley. Well, uh, I'm going to say he did, and so I'll go with C didn't. Wait, so who are you going with that? You're saying that? Yeah, he's saying Brett the Summers. Match game guy did. <laughs> right. The match game guy did, and the other and the Olympic guy didn't. Oh, <laughs> now you're off to a bad start. First of all, Brett Summers is a female. Maybe that's what threw you oh, off. Uh, but Brendan Hansen, no. So, all right, you're off to a bad start. That's okay. Now it gets oh, a little. Yeah, e it should get a little easier. See how well you know your TV shows and movies. Why don't you throw like Steve Joachim in there or something? I would have had that. We don't have that many luminaries, but Randy Grossman was a source of pride for a long time. Nice. <laughs> All right. In the movie Radio, right, uh, one of your films, yeah. what are the two kinds of cobblers uh, that Radio orders in the restaurant? Is it A, peach and blackberry? Is it B, peach and blueberry? Is it C, apple and blueberry? Or D, apple and peach? Peach and apple. No. <laughs> yes, no. Pe okay. Peach and Blackberry. Peach. Now, this is off, you know, this this is off the internet, I so I, go I could be wrong. I gotta go for yeah, you could be, but oh. I'll just give you the benefit of the doubt. I gotta go six for six now? Yeah, yeah, but, but if you go eight for, if you go 0 for eight, you also win. <laughs> <laughs> that means my research was pretty good. All right, in the movie Coach Carter, which is also another one of your projects, how many seniors were on Richmond's team? Ooh. Or is it no. none, two, four, or five? None. <laughs> Before oh. you're on a roll, I think you should go for the you should go for the O for eight. Are you on the set? I am. All right, I'm, you're gonna. This is this is a no brainer. If you miss us, every day. Okay. Said every day, you guys. Coach By Coach. the way, they they did a quiz. They did an oral quiz on the baseball bunch, which is one of my first shows. Yeah. I Johnny Bench, right? It, directed the first series, and I went like like. I got a 20% or something, you know, 50 was passing. I just, they, they skunked me. And that did have the San Diego chicken. Sorry. Well, I know uh, you're going to get it. I know you're going to get this one because Summer <laughs> Catch, which um, Jessica Biel is in, Freddie Prinze Jr., right? We all went, Phillies, yeah. we did a red carpet event. Uh, yes, and Mike, did. you were there, right? Down at the Ritz down in uh, yes, Old City. Uh, but this yes, is an yeah. easy one. Uh, name the Phillies scout. I'm not even going to give you the... Uh, the uh, multiple choice in summer catch name the Philly scout played by actor John McGinley. So did we call him Hugh Alexander? Yes, yes. Hugh Alexander. Yes. Go. See, I knew you were going to get that. Yes. Huey, Uncle That's Huey, bonus Great. right there. All right, how about this one? Uncle Huey. One of your uh, shows was Arliss. Great show with Robert Wool, who's a huge sports fan. Uh, what game show did Arliss win money to use as seed money to start the agency? Was it A, $10,000 Pyramid, B, Joker's Wild, C, Price is Right, or D, Card Sharks? Where do you get this nonsense, John? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I have no idea. Ten thousand hour period. You are correct, Mike. Yeah, you knew you that. Go. Subliminally, you knew that. All right. Uh, how about this one? You worked on who killed the USFL. Uh, yes. So the question is: Should I answer that? No, I don't say his name out loud. All right. We all know who did. Yeah. Well, we're, we're we're sticking to sports, especially on the question. It says when it folded in 1986. Who was the career leader in passing yardage? Uh, was it A, Steve Ooh. Young, B, Chuck Fusina, C, Bobby Herbert, or D, Jim Kelly? Okay, so you would obviously think Steve Young or Jim Kelly. Well, Bobby, actually, it's Bobby Abair. Yeah, Abair, I, I knew that. I knew, right when I said that, I knew hmm. I mispronounced it. Because he's, he's from Louisiana, I believe, Fusina right? Was obviously, Chuck Fusina was for the Philly Stars. Um, you know... Um, I'm going to say Bobby Hebert. Bobby Hebert is correct. Oh, uh, he had 11,137 nice, yards. You know what? I'll let, if you go the next two, you will officially win. Okay? So number nah, s- I want Well, I don't need to win. I, I just, this is fun. Number seven, <laughs> who had the most home runs of these four sluggers? So there's one guy who had the most home runs out of these four. Uh, A, Don Baylor. B, Dick Allen. C, Dave Parker. D, Boog Powell. You got Don so Baylor, Dick Allen, Dave Parker, and Boog Powell. Who had the most, you're saying? Out of those four. Um, Dick had 351. The, the rest is guessing. Baylor, Powell, and who's the fourth? Dave Parker. Mm. Uh, shoot. Um, well, I was going to say Dick Allen. Dick Allen oh is God. correct. Yeah, yes. There it is. All right, your last question. Okay, you did, as you mentioned earlier, you did an AI documentary. Uh, who was AI's first NBA coach? And you know what? I'm going to let you phone a friend to Tom Burgoyne because he doesn't know these quiz. He never, he doesn't uh, review the quiz. So you, if you get in a little trouble and Tom is a big hmm. NBA fan. Now Mike fact, will know this. In fact, Mike, I don't know if you know this, but my, uh, Tom Burgoyne is credited with an NBA assist. Oh, Did you know on. that? Can, we, can, can I tell him that story real <laughs> You've quick? You've already told this story on the podcast. I got to tell it and again. It's fairly gotta, embellished, but go ahead. But this could be a movie made about <laughs> no. your, your NBA My life assist. story. We go to an NBA game. This is when the Sixers were terrible. And they had probably 5,000 people in the arena, if that, right? They were bad. Dana Barros is the, uh, is the is a point guard. Yeah, I remember him. So we went to the game. Uh, Tom was a little bit overserved, <laughs> and he was getting louder and louder during the game. All of a sudden, the end of the game, it comes down to a crucial element. It was the last drive. I think the Sixers are down by a point, and they needed the bucket, right? It was desperate, desperate times. Dana Barris is dribbling down as quiet as a tree. You could hear anything. Dana Barris is dribbling down. He's just about to do a blind pass over to the shooting guard, right? And right when he's about to throw, um, Burgoyne, as a fan, can see that somebody saw what Dana Barris is going to do and was coming in for the steal. And Burgoyne yells out, and again, you can't hear anything. He goes, no! Dana Barris, like, about to pass it, pulls it back, and then that guy overcommits, and then he hits another guy back door. Boom, game winner, game winner, Tom Burgoyne with yeah. the assist. And Mike, that, that story's not embellished at all. No, no, not at all. <laughs> On so many levels, that's embellished. Yes, I was there. It's true. All right, so the question is, who was AI's first NBA coach? Okay, so obviously it was the Sixers, because he came in with the Sixers. Was it A, Larry Brown, B, Johnny Davis, C, Fred Carter, or D, John Lucas? And again, you can use Tom Burgoyne as a, uh, if you want to phone a friend. Um, what do you mean by I can use Tom or going if I want to phone a friend? Well, if you're not if you're not confident in the answer, you can you can use Tom as a as an, as help. No, I, th- I hope you're confident, Mike. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're not feeling I, too so good. Here's the thing. Well, so I think AI came in in '96, and like obviously Larry Brown is the obvious answer, but I'm gonna go Johnny Davis for that first year. And I concur. John Lucas, you guys ah, both failed. John Lucas. Yes. So you get a San Diego chicken movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a booby prize. That's, like, was he there for the whole for the whole year? Because I remember Johnny. They both were there really short period. Yeah, short it, it might have been his only year. I'm not sure exactly, but yeah, well, John Lucas. Yeah. Um, that's cool, though. I like John Lucas. Yep. Um, that was probably a good coach for him to come out of Georgetown with. All right. That was fun. Yeah, you did good, Mike. And you did good on our podcast. We really appreciate you. You followed up. Uh, we had Larry Boa last week. and um, Jason Stark the week before that. Yeah, and, but uh, John and I are thrilled you were able to join us. Uh, we're thrilled that, have you, you ever know. Had the boss? Have, you ever had, have you ever had John Middleton? No, we'd never had Middleton. 
We've had a lot of the uh, ex-players. We've had uh, We're, we're a little worried that he's going to realize how silly we are. Now, you know, it's a Philly fanatic. <laughs> he's going to pull the plug. Well, what am I talking about? Director of Fun and Games and the Philly fanatic. <laughs> yeah. I think he knows how, it's silly. I think he knows it's silly. <laughs> I, uh, uh, how about this? I Totally up to you. It's your show. Who am I? Well, see, this is the producer and me. I think you should have him. Now, I, I would be happy to float the idea to him um, just in passing. Hey, by the way, I talked to these knuckleheads. Um, would you ever want to be on the show? Um, and if he says, yeah, are you guys up for it? Or would you rather I just keep my trap shut and not get involved? How no. about how about if you work on a documentary of the uh, backstage of We're Going to Brave podcast, <laughs> the making and the all the behind the scenes stuff? Uh, it, sure. it would be as good. It, it would be as uh, many people would see that as the Katy Perry uh, yeah, one. Exactly Mike, right. is that what you're getting at? Yeah, you said it, man. You, as the as the only fan of the Katy Perry, <laughs> <laughs> you would know. No, I think it'd be good. I think I think I think John would enjoy letting the fair down a little bit and having some fun with you guys. It's yeah, absolutely. Fair. Yeah, no, nah, he'd be a fan. Absolutely. Well, really appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, really, and it's, it was great seeing you uh, this past week, and uh, we love that you're part of our, you know, still part of our Phillies extended family, you know? I appreciate it. I'd, lo- I'd love to say see you in October. Um, I guess there's, you know, not a lot of reason to fly back if you can't go to the game, but um, I hope, let's just say this, I hope the Fanatic is still flying in October, deep into October. Oh, I like it. I like it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining okay. us. Enjoyed it. Take care. All right. Well, John, another uh, great podcast. Thanks for uh, Mike for joining us, and uh, that was fun. That was great. And looking forward to next week. We uh, we'll have well, a surprise maybe, guest next week. We won't. Maybe it'll be John Middleton. <laughs> maybe it'll be right. <laughs> if, once Mike makes that phone call. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next week.